0: First of all, a sacrament is, a, is a, a, a word that is defined differently by different Christian groups. So that's one thing to know. For example, Roman Catholics define a sacrament in one way. Lutherans define it in one way. Presbyterians still in another way. But the, the root of the word essentially is a, a mystery of the faith. So it's, um, you know, the Lutherans define it as God's uh, command. It, so it has, it has to have three things for it to be a sacrament. It has to have a word of command... In other words, do this. Okay, it has to have a word of promise, so there is a there is an actual promise attached to that thing, and then it has a physical sign of some sort. So we only have two sacraments only, uh, whereas the Roman Catholic Church has seven. So the Roman Catholic Church seven. has seven. Yeah. So, well, is a so baptism and communion are our two sacraments. Um, uh, confession would be a sacrament in the Catholic Church. Uh, marriage, ordination extreme unction, which is mostly called last rites, um, and there's always one I forget, confirmation. Yeah, confirmation of a 13 or 14-year-old. So those are the seven sacraments. Now, some Lutherans actually thought we should have three sacraments or five sacraments historically, but ultimately the what won the day, uh, and, and confession was for a time a third sacrament for Lutherans. It was It was considered very important to confess sins and receive forgiveness. But in the end, Lutherans sort of saw that baptism was the vehicle through which one should understand confession. You know, you confess your sins and you receive forgiveness on the on the virtue of your of your baptism. You know, your baptism and and that's what we'll we'll talk about here. But so confession didn't become a third sacrament. Plus, you know, of course with baptism you have water as that physical symbol and you have bread and wine for the Lord's Supper, whereas the other ones wouldn't have that kind of physical symbol. So Um, I believe so. I need to research that a little bit more, actually. Yeah, the water and the blood. Um, yeah, I I I believe so, but I I, I don't want to say for certain because I would need to. You know, it's it's kind of like we were talking the other day, like John six. You know, whoever doesn't truly eat of my flesh, you know, of my blood, and I was saying that's not a eucharistic passage, right? But some people look at that as a as a as a eucharistic passage, yeah. All Roman Catholics view where Jesus is talking about he, how he's the bread of life, and he goes to such an extreme as say, "Whoever doesn't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood." I think it's John six fifty five. Maybe it's towards the end of the sixth chapter, of John. And almost every Roman Catholic says that is absolutely a Eucharistic uh, or or a text that looks at communion. But Luther didn't take that point of view. He 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 think he basically thought that Luther that Christ was talking about how. If you want me, you have to, you, you know, you take all of me. And it wasn't about the, the eating of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper at that point, but really about the way that um, in Christ, you know, to be a follower of Christ, you know, you can't deny him at any stage along the way. But let's talk about baptism. I mean, Luther gives very clear, simple answers. So the question first is what is baptism? Well, baptism is not simple water only. But it is the water comprehended in God's command and connected with God's Word. That's a very Lutheran way of seeing things. So is it just water? No, it's not water. It's water plus the Word. The, the water in and of itself is, you know, has no power. And this is what we'll, we'll see later. But it's the water with the Word of God. It's connected to the promise. So when you have the waters in the font or wherever it is that someone is baptized— when it's connected to that word, then it has true power from God, okay? Not superstitious power, not magical power, but, but miraculous power, okay, in, in a true sense of the word. Okay, what is that word of God? Christ our Lord says in Matthew twenty eight nineteen, and this is called the Great Commission, go ye into all the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so basically... You know, this is the last thing Jesus says to his disciples. This is their marching orders. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go and do with the world, into every corner of the world. And you're to teach them what I have taught you, and then when they're taught, you're to baptize them. It's exactly what we're doing, right? That's why, you know, why do I have a class for adults to get baptized? Well, because part of the command is to teach, Um and of course, all of us always have a lot more to learn about Christianity. So we could teach and teach and teach and learn and learn and learn forever. All of us could. But at some point, you have to say, how much one, how much does one need to know before they're baptized? You know. So, but
1: yeah, you need you need to know why you go, why why you baptize. Nice.
0: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Why why are we why are we doing this whole thing anyway? Yeah. Right. So, so yeah. um It's important enough to Jesus that he commands the disciples to do it. So there's the command. Remember, I said have a a, a command and promise, and, and we'll talk about the promise here in a moment. So, well, let's look at that now. What does baptism give or profit? Here are all the things that baptism does, says Luther. It works forgiveness of sins, delivers from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe, as the words and promises of God declare. Where are such words and promises of God? Christ our Lord says in Mark 16, 16, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. So, um, now, one of the, a couple of, kind of, I don't want to say contemporary points, but, because they've been around for for a while, let's talk about some of the common ways that baptism is employed in the church and the ways that people think about it, Okay. Um, first of all, whatever baptism is, it is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? It is not a insurance policy. Um, it is—okay, so as, as one of my professors in seminary gave the example, and it's a very helpful example, if I went to the tallest building in Houston, which I think is the Chase building, or the Shell anyway, and I had a massive, powerful fire uh, hose, right? And I could spray it, you know, 5,000 yards or something. And I had a very loud megaphone, right? And I was, you know, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son. and I, You know, and they're all getting wet with the fire hose. Is that a baptism? No. <laughs> now the word is there. The water is there. But these are not, you know, these are not people who have been brought into God's family. So, you know, so whatever baptism is, it's... uh it's more than you know, going through the act with uh the words and, and the water. So whatever it is, it's gotta be it's gotta be more than that. Um so there are some when they talk about baptism who, in my opinion, speak of it um too flippantly. You know, and there are people who are baptized when they think of it too flippantly. Oh, like I've been baptized, I'm good. Wait a minute, no. If that were the case we we could have just done a drive-by baptism, you know? Okay, on the other hand, some people regard baptism as merely a symbolic representation of a decision that they made. So the salvation comes through their decision, and the baptism can come later. It's just a, a seal, you know, or a public testimony of what they decided. So that is classic, like, Southern Baptist You know, decision theology. That's what we would call decision theology, you know. So that's why, to give an easy example, if you've ever heard of Billy Graham, right, you know, when he preached, he was an evangelical preacher. His job was to bring people out of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of God. His goal in preaching every single time he preached was to get people to make a decision. And he was very clear about that. The name of his magazine is Decision. So the decision is everything. You, get, you preach in a way that gets people to make that decision. Now, that's an evangelist preaching. That's not a parish pastor preaching. I can't preach that way every week because I've already got people in the congregation who are already Christian. They'd be sitting there, why does he keep telling me to make a decision, make a decision every, <laughs> every single week? You know? But once you, but, And I'm not opposed to people deciding, um, what, 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 but, but I place God at the front of those decisions. Okay. I don't place man at the front of those decisions because if man is at the front of those decisions, then he can thwart the will of God. And I think that is contrary to the nature of God. I think that God brings his people, his elect people into his kingdom. I think God is the primary actor in that. And our response is, um, as is sometimes called, uh, oh, the, word, the word escapes me. I'm embarrassed. Not complimentary, but, um, well, it'll come to me in a moment um but okay so again whatever so if 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 baptism just worked by putting water on someone and saying the right words then we should go around with water balloons splash people and say in the name of the father son and holy spirit yeah. real fast so that they go they go into heaven yeah, right. well obviously it's not that okay It's obviously, well, I think it's obviously not the other thing either, where it's about your decision, because that creates other theological problems. So it's your decision, and then your baptism is just a sign of that. How many people have you known that have been baptized more than once? There's lots of people out there who are baptized over and over and over. Why? Because they get baptized, then they backslide, or they they don't act as a Christian ought to. Well, the first one didn't take. I'm going to really mean it this time, though. So they're always battling against their sinful nature. And so what, what we would say is that when a person is baptized, something divine, godly, truly takes place. Okay, That person truly is marked in the name of God. They are, they are given a seat at God's table. That's, how, that's the language that I like to use. They're given a seat at God's table. This chair right here, that is the seat for Abel Yanez. No one else can ever take that seat. Okay, Now you can get up and leave that seat if you want to. Okay, so I do think that people always have the freedom to reject God. I believe that. Now, in the final grand scheme of things, the people who are elect of God really don't, but we don't live in that, you know, in that time frame. We live in the time where, you know, we, you know we're, we're, we're living on things in a day-to-day basis. We live in the present tense. We don't have an overarching view of time. So to put it very simply, I think that the baptized person can reject their baptism. No, I don't know why they would ever want to, but they can do that, okay? That's just, you know, Um, I don't think an elect person can ever become unelect, but I think a baptized person can become unbaptized, and I don't think there's any safeguard against that. So, like, if you baptize people only when they're adults, for example, like, well, I'm not going to baptize someone until they've been really taught and trained, and then they're really an adult, and they really made a decision, then it'll really stick. Well, lots of people fall away from that, and infant baptism. Well, that's obviously an issue. You baptize a baby; they don't know what's going on, and then they grow up and become not a Christian. What do what 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 do you mean about that baptism then? What what did we think about that? Um, you know. So what you you say the same thing that you would say about an adult baptism? Baptism is the work of God. Baptism is a thing of God. It is given over. It is a gift to the person now what that person does with it is is up to them but it's an irrevocable gift the seat will always be there the seat won't ever be taken away okay it's always there so what does the christian do when he sins when he falls away he returns to his seat at the table again and it's just like in your family right you know your child is bad you banish them from the table go to your room you're banished the punishment is exclusion from the family but What you want, of course, is for the child, hey, Papa, I'm sorry, I want to be back in the family, right? This is what happens again and again and again. You return to your baptism. Luther talked about daily dying and rising in your baptism. This is on your test. Luther talked about daily dying and rising in your baptism. So every single day a person, you know, sorry for the noise. Um, Chairs are getting rearranged apparently. Um, so every single day, a parent, a, you know, a person can repent before God and they return to their baptismal state. You know, when they were when they were chosen by God to be God's person, to be God's people. Okay. So again, just to summarize, maybe too many times, but it's not a magical act where where a certain words with water, you know, pleases a pagan god. That's not what it is. It's also not just about your will and your decision. Something really is going on there that is that is truly of God. So I believe that God intends for every person who is baptized to be baptized, but that doesn't mean all those people will be saved. And I don't think there's any safeguard around that. So what do we do with all those wasted baptisms? I'm gonna let God figure that out in his his economy of salvation. I really don't have a, a good answer for that, to be honest with yeah, you. That's
1: how many... No, it doesn't matter if you baptize Maybe you did baptize But if you still, you still have to follow the God You have to still do it. Not because you baptize oh Okay, I'm free. I'm good now. I can do anything.
0: Absolutely, yeah. That that would be an abuse of the gift, right? It would be an abuse of the grace. You know, just like how do we... you want God's favor, you're going to get away with it. Yeah, I know. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> No, in fact, it's really just the opposite, right? It's yeah. it's it's now you're one of God's people. So now, you, how do you live as one of God's people? You know right? where
1: you are, so don't. That's like, a, you know where you are. Don't tell me you don't know. Yeah. Don't tell me later. On, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know about that. Is. You know.
0: It's like when someone says, "You know, you're a McClanahan. Act like it. You know, you're a Fairchild. Act like it. You're a Yanez, Act like it. You know, um, you know, you're into this family. No, you're not. You're you're part of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit family." You know, so, so how then do you live? Well, then you live in a way that honors the Father. So baptism is carried out by the church with the best of intentions, just like all of church life. I mean, in a, in, I mean sometimes it's carried out among evil people with the worst of intentions, but generally speaking, baptism is carried out with the best of intentions, um, and, and, and I don't think we build a theology of baptism around you know, the way to make it work the best. Um, the, the way you have the fewest number of people fall away from their baptism. I don't think that's the right way to approach it. I think the way to approach it is adults bring children into baptism, you know, to be baptized into the faith, and, um, you know, with the best of intentions of rearing that child into, into the Christian faith. That doesn't always happen. Um, but there are safeguards in place to help that. One would be sponsors, like baptismal sponsors. For children, godparents... Uh, another would be confirmation. So when a child is 13 or 14 in the Lutheran and Catholic and other traditions, they go through a relearning, you know, a a confirmation process. And that is, we also, what we really call that is affirmation of baptism. So that's when they become a man or a woman into the church, an adult member of the church. They can vote. They can become an active member of the church as an adult. But really, most importantly, they sort of uh, own their faith, which isn't theirs to own, but, um they become a responsible adult christian so um so let, let let's let's keep going though because i think luther is going to go to where you know i would want to go here but he says how can water do such great things well it's not the water indeed that does them but the word of god which is in and with the water and faith which trusts such word of god in the water let me just stop there and faith that and faith there is really important because remember how i said people can leave their baptism you see, you can be baptized, but it can be worthless to you in fact, it can even be a judgment against you I think if if you're without faith. so I think that's what Luther was saying when he says, and faith, because your faith, your trust in God um, is a is a part of your baptismal faith okay so okay. uh, For without the word of God, the water is simple water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a gracious water of life and a washing of regeneration in the Holy Ghost. As St. Paul says, Titus 3, 6 to 8, By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. Um, Just so you know, there are many Christians who do not believe that Paul in Titus 3 is talking about water baptism, Um, that the washing of regeneration, he references there, is not a water baptism, but a spiritual baptism. Uh, So anyway, Lutherans disagree. Lutherans read that particular passage as Paul referencing water baptism. That's why it's washing. You know, what do you do 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 with water? You wash. Um, But... That There is a disagreement with some Christians on that. And then let's conclude here. What does bab- such baptiz- baptizing with water signify? Well, it signifies that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die with all sins and evil lusts, and again a new man daily comes forth and arise, who shall live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Where is this written? St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we are buried with Christ by baptism into death, that like as he was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So that I mentioned earlier, we daily die and rise in our baptism. Those are the, that's where that comes from. It's a very famous kind of Lutheran, Lutheranism kind of saying. Um, Because here's the thing, when you put all your faith on your decision, and I've met people, I've had these conversations. I was saved on July 22nd, 1998. That was the day I made the decision. And, and Luther's point is, well, we can out-baptize any Baptist because we have to make that decision every single day. You know, if it's going to come down to decision, and it's really not even a positive decision, it's really more repentance. See, there's, there's a difference between I made the decision for God, therefore I earned my salvation through my decision, rather than I am, a, I am giving up. See, it's one thing to, to to win a war by being on the offensive and fighting the battle, right? But what we're essentially doing is we're surrendering to God. We're allowing Him to win the war. So that's that's daily that is so the first step is death. Daily dying and rising in baptism. We die so that God can raise us up. That's different from I made a decision, then I fell away, then I needed to make another decision, then I fell away, then I needed to make another decision, and we make a decision. Exactly, I mean, just just die already, you know, <laughs> just die already. It's, true, right? it's okay, you'll be resurrected <laughs> but um anyway, I'm not saying that that those are unchristian you know holy ideas, but i some people would say that, but i I do think it's a wrong understanding of sort of God 's sovereignty in the process and our relationship to God okay um well let's let's keep going. Uh, let's look at the sacrament of the altar which is the Lord's Supper. This is what Luther calls it, the sacrament of the altar. What is the sacrament of the altar? Well, it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine for us Christians to eat and to drink instituted by Christ himself. See amen. So, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, of course, we're talking about the bread and wine. You know, we eat eat at communion. So, Lutherans have always, you know, maintained uh, that the body and blood of Christ are present in, with, and under, our preposition sometimes commonly used, the, the bread and the wine. Now, does that mean that Christ is present in the same way that he was present among the disciples? No. I mean, are we really eating a piece of his body? No. Um, are we really drinking his blood? Well, no. I mean, not in that sense. Um, it's
1: like a symbolic...
0: Well, it's, it's more than symbolic, but, you know, because we do talk about bodily presence. But Lutherans basically refuse to define the exact nature of the way that Christ is bodily present in the bread and the wine. So um, it's, it's frustrating to other Reformed Christians that this is where Lutherans get accused of, of embracing mystery, but without, you know, because some people would say it's just symbolic meal. Okay. And it actually, it is symbolic. It's a, it's a, it is also symbolic. There's a lot of symbolism in the Lord's Supper. That's okay. Um, But we would also say Christ is truly present. And so let's, let's read, where is it written? The Holy Evangelist, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write thus, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Of course, we say these words every Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. These are just the words of institution, is what they're called. After the same manner, he took the cup, and when he had supped, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Take, drink, all of you. Uh, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. Uh, this do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. Um, so um why do we say that christ is present in the bread and wine well when he instituted the meal one of the things he said while he was holding the bread is this is my body he didn't say it symbolizes my body in fact the the from what i understand of hebrew there really wouldn't have been a an is verb there so he, it's almost like he's holding it and saying my body this you know um so but historically we believe that for the first Say s- ten centuries of the church, maybe even eleven. The basic doctrine of the church and the biblical doctrine of the church is that um, is that the body is present in the bread, and it's still bread and wine. So the church had the Lord's Supper, um, and and that Christ was present in that bread and wine, but it was still bread and wine.
1: Yes.
0: Now the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation comes along in the twelfth century or so. It begins there, and that. Is kind of a long story that deals with Aristotelian, you know, like metaphysics or philosophy or whatever. That basically argues that 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 God cannot be present in the finite. Um, and actually, that's a Calvinist understanding as well. So there are other Reformed Christians who would argue that the that the infinite cannot be present in the finite. And uh, Lutherans tend to say, well, that's exactly what the incarnation is when Jesus, you know, when the Son became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ the infinite, became finite, right? He was in a, in a human body. So we don't have any, like, categorical difficulty with, with believing that Christ can be present in bread and wine. Um, one of the common issues as well is, well, we know that Christ bodily resurrected, right? He, he was bodily risen from the dead, and he bodily ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven right now. So right now, Jesus Christ bodily, just as he did when he was resurrected, it exists. I'm not sure exactly where. I don't, couldn't find him on my GPS, but yeah. I, know, I know that he exists right now bodily. I believe that. And, um, and so how can he be present bodily in the bread and wine? To which Lutherans say, well, ultimately, we don't have the answer for that. But Luther was worried that when you remove that as a possibility or even a certainty, you place God in a situation where you're saying what he can't do or you're thinking about modes of presence that preclude that as a possibility um, and, and you end up reducing the Christian faith to, a, to, to mere pragmatic or practical ways of thinking about things. You know, like, oh, well, Christianity is only about what is possible. You know, it's, it's only about what's possible in this human realm. So then, like the the infinite cannot be present in the finite. Well, that's a pragmatic way of saying it. That's that's a limitation on God. Um, Muslims, for, for example, would say the same thing about that. They, that's why they would deny the incarnation. You know, well, Allah could never become flesh. Well, why not? Um, you know, if he's all powerful and sovereign over all things, why why couldn't he become a human being? if he had a overarching plan of salvation, you know, as a result. So, um, but the, the, the Roman Catholic doctrine we think is faulty uh, because it says the, the bread and wine really cease being bread and wine. They just look like bread and wine. So if you've been to a Roman Catholic church and you get, get the wafer and the wine, um, it still tastes like a wafer or bread. It still tastes like wine. Yeah. But those are its accidental properties, not its substantial properties so those are aristotelian categories so it looks like bread and wine but it's it's not bread and wine it actually is only the body and blood of christ and um for that reason you'll see roman catholics very careful to take care of the you know the if it spills or if you drop a wafer you know in fact that's a good reason to use wafers because you don't have crumbs you know, you can get into really complex conversations about, well, if Christ is present in a loaf of bread, does that mean that he's present in each crumb, even if it's not eaten? Um, and uh, anyway, that, that's, a, that's a question for the altar guild. How do, you, how do you clean a rag? You know, when you have a rag and you wipe it off and, or you spill wine and you dip how do you clean the rag? Yeah. Um, most churches, our church, after our fire, we were able to install a sink. That does not drain into the city plumbing, but it drains to the ground. Because the, the, to, to take uh, the Lord elements from the Lord's Supper and put them outside is acceptable. You know, extra wine or bread and let the birds and the ants eat it. Some people think that's not a good thing to do. People generally should consume whatever has been blessed. But for whatever you don't get consumed, you have a sink and, and, and the plumbing line just goes to the outside. You don't want to put Jesus in your city sewage. Yes, yes. So, you know. It's complicated, huh? It, is, it, it does get complicated. Um, but I think that one thing we always want to remember is that this meal is, is for us. Yes. The Lord instituted it for us. It's it, it is, you know, Christ's presence among us. In what manner exactly, we don't know. So one of the terms that is often attributed to Lutherans but I don't think was used by Luther himself is what's called ubiquity, which is that Christ can have a ubiquitous presence apart from his bodily presence um, in heaven, right, or, or or wherever he is right now. Um, I I I think we can safely call it heaven, um, either that or paradise. But anyway, you, you get the idea. Well, let, let's jump back yeah. in here. So um, so yeah so. So the doctrine of ubiquity, which again isn't a word that Luther ever used, but, but that's the idea that you could have the risen and ascended Christ in heaven right now, and also Christ is present in a, in a way um, in, in, the, in the bread and wine. So you're never going to eat a piece of bread and be like, huh, that tastes like somebody's big toe. That's not what we're saying.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, we're saying it's more than a spiritual presence. Um, because when you say it's only spiritual or only symbolic, I think Luther's concern was that it begins to have too practical an effect, too practical. It says something too practical about God. And what Luther wanted was, was the image and the truth, I think, that, that God really is present among his people, that he hasn't left his people, that it's more than an idea that we can conjure up, but that God is really with us in our worship life you know, and that this is the way, the ongoing way that Christ is present among us. Not just like we say it, so it must be true, but we have something we can put in our hand and we can say Christ is here with this. And why do we believe it? This is my body. That's why we believe it. Maybe we're maybe we're wrong. Maybe the Lutherans are wrong. And I, honestly, I think the early Christians were right. And by the way, in First Corinthians 11, one of the stronger biblical witnesses to what I've said and what Luther believed is that Paul talks about interchangeably the body and the bread. He's talking about the same thing, but one sentence he calls it bread and the other he calls it the body. So Paul in the early church seemed to have this understanding that, you know, there's there's body and that it's still bread. So that would be against transubstantiation. It's still bread because Paul calls it bread you know but but the body oh, of christ is present
1: i believe when jesus doing that for the first time it was still bread to him right
0: he was with bread yeah i mean yeah it was
1: real bread absolutely and wine.
0: yeah absolutely when he doing the, and, and his and
1: body was not his blood
0: right right because he had not been crucified yeah. yet so he's instituting a meal that would take place in the future um but but at that time, it was... It was and, and there's some debate about what kind of meal. It, it was some kind of ritual meal that dealt with the Passover. You know, the Passover, remember we talked about... Um, that was when Moses was getting the Jewish people, the Hebrews, out of Egypt. Yes. Remember that? And the last of the ten plagues, remember, was the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. So God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill a young lamb, take the blood, and put it on the doorpost, right? And then the angel of death is going to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. But if uh, the if you have blood on the door, then the angel of death will pass over you, hence that's the Passover. And that was a festival to be celebrated every single year, and it's still celebrated by, by Jews to, to Jews. this day. Yeah. yeah, And Jesus was crucified, we believe, uh, on the Friday, some people actually say Wednesday, but we would say on the Friday um, before the uh, to begin the, the the Passover Sabbath, which was Friday night because the Jewish day begins with evening, not day. So the, the Sabbath was Saturday, Friday evening to Saturday evening, we would say Jesus is crucified the hours before that. So he was crucified, of course, and that's the that is the blood, the shed blood of the Lamb of God mm-hmm. so that God will pass over our sins. So there's the connection between the crucifixion of Christ and the Passover very briefly. Um, but certainly, Jesus was celebrating some type of Passover meal. And Passover wasn't a one-day thing. It was a week-long celebration. It was a week-long observance. People would come from all over the world to to, to the temple. Um, so Jews might travel 100 miles. And I say the world, you know. They yeah, didn't fly a 747. Seven. Yeah. Exactly. So, But they had been scattered in centuries before. So you had Jews you know, in the surrounding areas. So they would come into Jerusalem. So there would have been maybe two or 300,000 people or so in Jerusalem. I've even heard some people think a million. I, I don't think that would have been possible. But, you know, you've got hundreds of thousands of people for sure in, in Jerusalem at this time for the Passover. Um, and, uh, and, and and so meals were, were a common thing. And um, anyway, whatever the, the meal instituted by Christ was, it was associated with the Passover. I think that's very safe to say. I don't know if it was the the big meal or one of the smaller ritualistic meals. I'll leave that to other scholars, but but that's what they were doing. So um, let's finish this section out. Uh, What's the benefit of such eating and drinking? That is shown to us in these words, given and shed for you for the remission of sins. Namely, that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Let's just finish this out. Uh, How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? It is not the eating and drinking, indeed, that does them, but the words which stand here, namely, given and shed for you for the remission of sins, which words are, beside the bodily eating and drinking, as the chief thing in the sacrament. And he that believes these words has what they say and express, namely, the forgiveness of sins. Who then receives such sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation is, indeed, a fine outward training, but he... Uh, is truly worthy and well prepared who has faith in these words given and shed for you for the remission of sins. But he that does not believe these words or doubts is unworthy and unfit. For the words for you require altogether believing hearts. So just like with baptism, faith is a component of receiving the Lord's supper. Okay. Right? He says there it, you're not fit for the words if you if you doubt that Christ is present. Okay, in in the bread and wine. That doesn't mean you have to have some philosophical understanding about how he could be present. It just means that, you know, you believe that he is present. And again, just like with baptism, it's not a magical act where you splash someone with water and put words and say words, right? Again, he says it's not just the eating and the drinking, but it's, um, but it's the words that Christ attaches to the eating and drinking, so the eating I mean all of us eat bread and drink wine. Say let's say we go to a nice Italian restaurant we drink red wine and eat eat delicious bread. Mm-hmm. Is that communion? No, because it's not the eating and drinking that makes it communion, it's the word of God connected to, to that particular bread and wine. So um so that's so these are the these are the fruits then that communion offers. Um now I I would say this too, you know when we talk about the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins is affected through confession and forgiveness. So the very first thing we do when we gather in worship is we have confession and forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all say, we're in bondage to sin, we cannot free ourselves. The pastor says, as a called and ordained minister of the Church of Christ, um, I hereby there, you know, <laughs> uh, declare unto you the entire forgiveness of all your sins. Now, does forgiveness take place there? Yeah. You don't have to wait to take the Lord's Supper later in the day for that forgiveness to be real. It's made real right then because the, the church has the authority to forgive the sins of people on behalf of Christ. Mm-hmm. He's the ultimate forgiver of sins, of course. So what takes place at communion? Well, um, it's a sign of our forgiveness. It's a seal of our forgiveness. It is symbolic of our forgiveness. And is there actual forgiveness in the bread and wine? Yes, there is. But you can be forgiven apart from it. So I just want to say that, right? So, because Luther makes a big deal about how you receive forgiveness through the bread and the wine, and I agree with that. You can also receive forgiveness apart from the bread and wine too. So that's kind of the um, that's kind of the thing. <sighs> okay. Any questions about baptism or the Lord's Supper? And, and by the way, we talked last week about you know normally the Lord's Supper is reserved for the baptized. Uh, different churches have different practices as to who can commune. So if you go to another Lutheran church, you may be able to commune, you may not be able to commune. I've, I know of churches that allow dogs to take communion. You know, uh, I think that's a little extreme. Yeah, uh, well, it's, not, it's not for dogs, it's for people. It's not a snack. Um, but uh, it's very extreme. I don't mean to underplay that. But anyway, um, so... Um, But communion is for the baptized, okay, generally speaking. It is, you know, baptism brings you into the community, and the Lord's Supper is that meal that that seals us as a community. So I normally reserve—I mean, I really always, unless I'm sort of unknowing or unthinking, reserve the Lord's Supper, you know, for the baptized. Um, I don't have an age limit on it. There are different schools of thought about that, too. Some people think you have to be confirmed, like when you're 13 or 14. In the Roman Catholic Church now, they have First Communion maybe when they're five or six or seven or eight or something like that. Yes. Um, the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox churches, will give babies communion with a spoon. You know,
1: the Catholic Church is baby too, right? Two months old. I, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. do they? Yeah. Okay, they're doing the 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 valetice. Okay, the baptize. Oh, so they do they give them communion too? Communion, I believe, is going to be about. No, first, first. Oh yeah,
0: no baptism for sure. Oh, okay, you know, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's more like six or seven or eight usually. It used to be like fourteen. So like they'd get they'd get confirmed. Yeah, confirmed. Yeah, and Confirm. then they could have the Lord's supper. I'm of the school, right or wrong, that says. That, that be, because none of us truly fully understand the Lord's Supper, I'm okay with children under, receiving it if they've been baptized. Yes. I think it's something you grow into anyway. Um, as adults, we, you know, just either, there's no magic that happens, you know, where you have a magical insight. You simply, you participate in the Lord's Supper by receiving it again and again and again and living out life in this community and then, you know, and your, your appreciation and your love of the Lord's Supper grows as you get older. There's no magic that happens at confirmation. There are just as many 14-year-olds who go through confirmation and get good grades and pass the test and, yeah. and get confirmed, and then you never see them again. So there's no, there's no solution to perfect reception of baptism or the Lord's Supper. You simply offer it with a modicum of discipline— not, not the minimal discipline, but appropriate discipline. Um, I mean, for example, if you know that someone is, say, committing adultery, you don't give them the Lord's Supper. Or if you know that they don't, you know, truly believe what's going on, you might not give them the Lord's Supper either. But I tend to be somewhat liberal in my approach to the Lord's Supper. You know, so children receive it, um, and I don't ask questions before they come to the Lord's table. I am not worried. Maybe I should be, but I am not worried about God's judgment of a non-believer receiving communion if I had no knowledge of their belief. Yes. yes right. Yes, yes, yes. I just I'm ignorant. Now when I find out, you know, yes. I have told people, look, you've never been baptized, or you know, you're not you're not a Christian. It's reserved for. Right. So. So. Okay. So the church year. So. So there's there's the ca- secular calendar you might call it right January February March April May. Uh, fall, summer, autumn, uh, winter. Anyway, um, and then the church has a, a calendar as well. And one of the one of the things I would consider it a success if members of this church thought as much in terms of the church calendar as the as the as the real calendar, right? I mean, we we ought to think in terms of the church calendar on a, normally. So we, we have ways of helping people remember what kind of sort of church season you're in. Now, the whole church year is really pretty simple. You have two major festivals and one pretty big festival and other smaller festivals. So the two major festivals, can you, you want to guess what they are? The two biggest church events of the year? Christmas?
1: Christmas. How do call it the other
0: one. You can call it in Spanish.
1: The Easter
0: day? Pascha. Yeah, you go Pascha, yeah. Uh, yeah, Easter. Yeah, so Easter is kind of the big one, because that's the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord. Yes. I mean, overcame death, devil, and, you know, sin. I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than that. Uh, and then and then Christmas, you know, when, when God I mean, became flesh. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. It, it is... It is when he, we, you know, we always do the birth story, but I always like to remind people, you know, what we're really celebrating is the incarnation of God when God became flesh. Okay, I never, you
1: know? I never, I never heard that,
0: that before. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, you, you, you have a child, right? You have to, more than one, right? Yeah, so, so you know that there's a period there before they're born where you consider yourself a father yes, or a mother, yes, yes, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't become a child when they're born, uh, But anyway, you have to celebrate it. You still celebrate their birthday. You know, nobody has a party for, hey, my child was probably conceived on this day, you know. Uh, So you have to celebrate something. But I think it's important that what we're really celebrating at Christian is the the mind-boggling miracle that the God of all creation came to us in human flesh, right? And so there's that whole process of the announcement to Mary, her conception, and then eventually the birth. But that said, so those are the two big festivals. So you think of those as your two anchors. Everything revolves around that in the church here. And um, before each of those festivals, the church has seen fit to establish a period of fasting and or, you know, contemplation. So before Easter, you might know Lent. Okay, and like it's kind of famous, people don't eat sweets during Lent. They usually give something up for Lent. Right, you've heard of this tradition? Or? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. So Lent is 40 days before Easter, not including Sundays. Sundays are always a day of resurrection.
1: So you got a special meal for that day? Are you supposed to eat or that? Well, days?
0: usually what has happened in the 40 days, and it's 40 because Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by the devil. Yes. So it's always 40 days before Easter. So you get, you, you okay, and Easter, by the way, is established by the Jewish, uh, well, it's, uh, different traditions establish it different ways. The Eastern Christians and Western traditions sometimes have different Easter's. Basically, it has to do with the lunar cycle, and and, and that's how Passover is established. So it's the something Sunday that deals with the su- such and such full moon of I, I don't even remember. It, it it's like the first Sunday after the first full moon of the passover or, or or something and i i should know that and i've i swear i've research, researched that three times but that's why easter is always at a different day it's it's usually between it's it's always between like march 25th at the earliest and april 22nd at the latest or something it's going to it's going to fall within that period yeah, yeah. yeah but um like this next year i think it's april 1st or was that last year i can't remember but i know april fools day it's uh, i think it's this year but anyway so Easter is is it's always on a Sunday because it's always on the Sunday after the the moon cycle. Uh but Christmas is always on December 25th and the reason for that is because it's believed that the his conception was March 25th that the angel spoke to Mary on March 25th and there are different reasons for for that. But that that said those are the two big ones. So you have a period before Easter called Lent which is 40 days of you usually You might give up sweets. Some people give up meat. Roman Catholics usually do not eat meat on Friday. So McDonald's always sells a lot of Filet-O-Fish sandwiches uh, during Lent because a lot of people give up red meat or whatever meat for... I believe it's
1: from a Catholic speech.
0: Yeah, so they usually eat fish uh, a lot more during Lent. So there, there are those traditions. Those aren't in the Bible, but it's a help, helpful reminder. You know, you might give up coffee, or you might give up putting sugar in your coffee. I mean, it doesn't have to be big. It's just a daily reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't buy you salvation or anything like that. Before Christmas is the season of Advent, and Advent is different from Lent, but it's, it's a thoughtful penitential season as well, where we uh, think about not only the first coming of Christ, God in the flesh, but the second coming. So a lot of the texts of Advent are about the end times, you know, when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. So Advent is a season where we think about the first coming of Christ and the second Advent or the second coming of Christ as well. Um, and so that is always four Sundays before Christmas, it could be 3 weeks and 1 day. It could be 4 full weeks, but it's 4 Sundays before Christmas. Um, and Advent is the beginning of the church year. Okay? Advent is the beginning of the church year. The other big festival you have is Pentecost. 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 And that means 50, basically 50 days like pentag- yeah, like yeah. a pentagram or that's a satanic thing. Anyway, pentagon was like yeah, five-sided, right? Five-sided. That's yeah, It's like Latin word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, so Pentecost is the, is the festival when the Holy Spirit comes to the church 50 days after Easter. So that's in, recorded in the book of Acts, Acts, the second chapter, when the Holy Spirit comes to the church and people are speaking their own languages, but other people present from, again, all over the world can understand what is being said. So that's a, that's a major, major festival because that is when we would say the Holy Spirit is given to the church
1: doing
0: Well, it's kind of an extra festive day, yeah. you know, but we don't, it's not as big as Christmas or Easter, you know, and it doesn't have its own preceding season, right? So it's actually, it ends the Easter season. So let, let's kind of walk through it through the year, right? So you've got, so the year begins with Advent, okay, and so that's, that's the, that's the that's the preparation ultimately for the coming of Christ. And then, of course, there's Christmas.
1: Yeah.
0: Christmas is always 12 days, always. You know, you ever heard the song on the first day of Christmas, yeah, and there's 12 days? Yeah. Those are, that's from December 25th until January 6th. It's not, it's not before 25th. It's, it's after the 25th. And then January 6th begins the season of what's called Epiphany, um, which is the season of light. And the story most associated with Epiphany is the wise men. That's not really a Christmas story. You know, the three wise men, yeah, the magi, yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. that's not really a Christmas story. That's an Epiphany story. You, you they come later.
1: You celebrate so, a lot that in the Latin. Okay. Not, not, not really in, like, Colombia. Yeah. It's more like a, in Cuba still celebrate. Like oh, okay. People celebrate, you know, because that's pretty strong in Spain. Ah, uh, okay. So Cuba has more Spain influence. Yeah the other uh, Latin country because yeah. Cuba for, was like four hundred years uh Spain. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. So interesting. when Cuba will follow too much like yeah. Spain country you yeah that the, the three whistles. Yeah that that's when you receive your present for Christmas. You don't receive your Christmas present. Oh right, know. right, right. You have right. to wait all the way to the sixth. That's right. That's right. January 6th. The January sixth. Yeah. yeah. very good. Well then so you yeah, already I, know. I, I I'll that stove, I know that's good.
0: Yeah, that, no, January 6th is Epiphany Day, and that's when the, the wise men brought the gifts. Yes. So that's the tradition, yeah. Well, now we don't even wait till Christmas, right? You know, it's like, how, how soon can we get the gifts, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
1: um,
0: okay, but, um, so then you have a, the season of Epiphany, and it lasts as long as it needs to. Could be three weeks, could be eight weeks, until you get to Lent. Lent begins with Ash Wednesday. You ever see people with crosses? Ash Wednesday yeah. Ash yeah. Wednesday is the beginning of okay, Lent. The beginning. Okay. Yeah, that and then Lent is the forty days, not including the, uh, not including the Sundays.
1: Are we doing Ash
0: here? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, we do Ash Wednesday here. Yep. Um, and then, so the the end of Lent is Easter, Easter Sunday, yeah. and the and the last week there is is called Holy Week, and on Holy Week, during Holy Week, before the week before Easter. You have uh, Palm Sunday, you have Maundy Thursday, which is which is the institution of the Lord's Supper when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. So those are the stories we have. Good Friday, the day of the crucifixion. Good Friday, yeah. Holy Saturday, the day that Jesus rested in the tomb. We have a service for that. And then Easter Sunday. So Holy Week is the busiest week of the, of the yeah, year. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. Yeah.
1: So we have, we, have, uh, we, have, we have come to the church almost every day?
0: Well... I mean, you we, could. We got activity. Or yeah, activity. we we have Palm Sunday service. We always have Monday Thursday service, Good Friday service. We have an okay. Easter okay. vigil Saturday okay. evening, and then Easter Sunday service. Yeah, so it's it's five services that from Sunday to Sunday. So you got a busy yeah. weekend. That. That's okay. a busy. That's always a busy week for, for us. Yeah, um, and uh, and so then Easter is always fifty days. It ends with Pentecost. Yes, and then Pentecost basically goes until Advent. So Pentecost and Epiphany are like the accordion seasons. They can be long or they can be short. It just depends on when Easter falls. Easter, the date of Easter determines everything else. It determines how long Pentecost will be. See, the season, of, right now we're in Pentecost. It's green. And those are the colors associated with, which I think is on your test. So sure. um, so usually Advent, for example, is, is blue. And um, all festivals are white and gold. Christmas you know, green, right? Well, right now we're in green. Yes. Those are the growth seasons. So Epiphany and, and Pentecost are the green seasons. Okay. Those are the flexible seasons. They could be long, they could be short. It just depends on if Easter is early. Yes. If Easter is early, Epiphany will be short, but mm. the season after Pentecost will be long. If Easter is late, Epiphany could be long, and the season after Pentecost could be short. I mean, I say short, it could be between twenty one or twenty two weeks and twenty eight weeks. So
1: the colors change yeah. depends.
0: So the colors change on the season. Yeah, so that's when you're going to notice. So, so the so the festivals are always white and gold. Easter and Christmas and other small festivals like All Saints or Holy Trinity Sunday or, uh, uh, you know, those are always white and gold. The festivals are always white and gold. Epiphany always white and gold. Um,
1: so what is the only one change color like?
0: When does it change? Yeah. So, like, uh, every, every new season you get a new change. Yeah, so no, but uh, most
1: is, like, white and
0: gold. For festivals. Oh, for festivals. For festivals. So the okay. big festivals. Okay. okay. Except for Pentecost. Pentecost is a Holy Spirit festival, uh, so it's red. Red mm-hmm. is the color of the Holy Spirit. So Pentecost is red. Reformation Sunday for us Lutherans is red. Anytime you have a festival that commemorates a martyr, like someone who died for the faith, that's always red because that's the Holy Spirit's life in the church. Um, Lent is purple. Purple's the color of repentance, I guess. Lent is the color of—I've heard different things, but Lent is purple, Advent is blue, and then the growth seasons are green. So I'll go through it again. Here's the church year again. This is on your test. So, <laughs> so church year again. Begins with Advent, and it's blue. That's preparation for the first and second coming of Christ. Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation of God. It's white because it's a, a festival.
1: Yeah.
0: Epiphany, um, of course, that day is is white. Epiphany Day, January 6th, is white. white but the season, season is green. It, the season of Epiphany is green because um, it's a flexible, numbered season. And then epiphany ends with ash wednesday which is the beginning of lent and that's that is uh purple and that um basically is our preparation a time of repentance in preparing us for the festival of easter and holy week is before that but we'll, we'll just consider it part of lent for now um easter is white and gold because it's a festival and it lasts for 50 days and the end of easter is with pentecost because that's when the holy spirit came and Pentecost is red because that's a Holy Spirit festival. And then you've got Pentecost. The season after Pentecost goes until Advent. And then you're back starting over again. So that's basically the church year. It's 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 not haphazard. One it's not like you're gonna show up one day. Oh, I think we'll have blue today. Oh, I think it'll be purple. No, it, it deals with the season that you're in. And um, and so that that's and, 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 and it seems like we have green well green is about half the year.